memory swells in vain, gorged with false treasures. It's my whole life that I pull from there, for not having known how to live, so that on the day of reckoning, I might be able to prolong for an instant this instant sunk without trace. The clip you have just heard was the opening lines from Sarah Pucell's 2016 feature Confessions to the Mirror which has just been released as a limited edition Blu-ray by the international arts agency Lux. Confessions to the Mirror takes its title from an incomplete memoir from the French surrealist artist Claude Cahan. The film follows Cahan's text and explores her early and later life and work, including her political propaganda activity and imprisonment in Jersey with her partner during the Nazi occupation of the island. Sarah Pucell's films have been shown in galleries and won awards at festivals internationally. The majority of her films take place within the confinements of domestic space, where the grounded reality of the house itself becomes a portal to a complex and multi-layered physical realm. In her exploration of the animate and inanimate, her work probes a journey between mirror and surface, in which questions of representation are negotiated. A film festival poster with an image from Confessions to the Mirror has hung in my studio since I first saw the work in 2017, so it's a film that I've always felt close to. The Blu-ray release seemed the ideal time to talk to Sarah about her work, and I started with the question about her own journey into experimental film. Into the Moth Light. I did my BA in the north of England, uh, Manchester, in theatre arts and visual arts. <laughs> and I started to see Eastern European animation the film club there. Otherwise, I didn't discover experimental film until I got to the Slade for my MA, where Jane Parker, Liz Rhodes, Chris Wellsby all had very important impact on me. Um, their work encouraging me to go to the film co-op um, to start seeing films there. So there I was interest, introduced to a history of experimental film in a way, from Maya Deren onwards, experimental film from two decades back, three decades back, American Underground, including um, Kenneth Anger, maybe Jack Smith came later, but it, I almost retrospectively relate to it. And a lot of uh, feminist work or um, lesbian feminist work um, 
from the US and from the UK and sort of Europe. So that's where it started for sure and continued. I've been working in Super 8 before and I was introduced then to 60 millimeter. They said, you've got to do this. And that's where I started. Mm-hmm. And I'm always interested in how a city can influence an artist's work. And you mentioned the, the London Filmmakers Co-op. So that was obviously quite an eye-opener for you having you know been in Manchester and come down to London and suddenly in that particular scene and all also I, I imagine access to see the work that was being made by the artists at the time. That must have been great. Yes it was. It was. And it's a curious time because I was also studying with Douglas Gordon. Uh that was the same year. And short so there was the gallery scene happening at the same time that I didn't participate in, but it was erupting then, um, moving image in the gallery almost. Douglas Gordon was a key figure in that. It didn't speak necessarily to histories of experimental film, and he wasn't making film at that time, so there's sort of asymmetry as well. Yeah, I continued to... I started soon afterwards teaching on fine art BA that I've sort of been doing for 30 years. So what's been happening in painting and, you know, in the wider field of gallery has always been part of what part of my context, even if not directly at all. How did the move from eight millimeter to sixteen millimeter change your practice? Do you think at that time? It forced me to be um, much more, I could say, rigorous, precise, because when the, with the larger film, one is more precise, and. Um, I had to get funding before I could make the film. So I'd have to write something up and wait for it and make the film and then wait for the next funding. I think people don't realise that's why 60 millimetre filmmakers, it's not as prolific as when you do digital because there's this time factor and waiting for money, waiting for funds. Um, more rigorous, more precise. It's expe- because of the expense, but also the access to the larger frame possibly as well impacted that. And when I, for the first, is it... 10 years, at least 10 years, I was editing on a Steenbeck. So I was doing it per frame. Um, and it is a much more pleasurable experience to do it. But um, after that, for another for the next 10 years, I was editing on a computer, even though I had shot on film um, for another 20 years or something like that. Yeah. So when you were making your earlier work, like You Be Mother, um so was this after your, your time at, at the Slade? Were you sort of uh, out of education at that point and trying to find your, your, your voice as an artist? I made it and completed it as I left the Slade. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it was the start. It was trying to find my voice. Um, I'd been piddling around with similar imagery before in Super 8 because it started from painting sculpture. I was working between sculpture and painting. And out of that... I then ended up with photographs and actually that film came out of the photographs. I made the photographs first and then I made a film from the photographs and I kind of did that with the next film and um, have always worked a bit with photography alongside my films. And I know that you obviously you were working and and, and living in, in London at the time, but revisiting a lot of your, your films, the, the city itself has never featured in, in any of your films. So obviously it's London stacked full of 
famous locations that Hollywood points a camera at all the time. And even in, in the film Cast, where you the, the only film that I've seen of yours where you have shot outside, still feels very claustrophobic. So were you conscious of the fact that London was on your doorstep, but you were pointing your camera in a very confined space in, in your flat at the time? Okay. Well, I could just say that an interior is still London. You could say that. Uh-huh. Uh, I was in London, 100%, and that did impact a lot. And I think that's part of what I'm sort of interested in, that actually this is London. I think you see sort of interior terraced houses, and you do see the camera pointing out a window, which is something that I'm reflecting on now, that mirrors and windows. There's the window in blind light. The whole film is shot out of window. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing stuff recently a bit with that um, during lockdown, inevitably. Um, And I found something I shot recently, which I'm going to pull out. Um, No, no, I shot a long time ago, sorry. Um, And I've just found it. A few things I shot a long time ago, I've I've just discovered. Yes, it's it's claustrophobic. It's interior. Uh, My work is very much about, um, does very much explore kind of interior world, which is one might say where I live, (laughs) for better, for worse. Um, I was kind of interested in the employing this interior space as a way of communicating something about interiority of the psyche, even though obviously we're looking at, you know, objects in space it's actually a sort of metaphor or uh, of the interiority of the psyche which we know Gaston Bachelard talks about his poetics of space that there's a psychology in our relationship to you can call it a domestic or a home space the table you know um so that's occurred in my work I was in, engaged in surrealist um work influenced from has been influential right sort of from the beginning of my work maybe because I was interested in images speaking on their own the relationship of the image with the unconscious and to to the emotion and I was studying at a time when conceptual art was riding very high and I think I felt a bit alienated and I just did something quite different and um, maybe because I'd come from theatre arts, I'd come from a sort of slightly different space where I had the, these freedoms to work with image making. And so when I say the image, I'm trying to come back to what you're saying about interiority, the interior space is is a big focus, I think, of a lot of surrealist imagery and photography or, and approaches to image making through the psyche. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. true. And that's where I came. And my interest in surrealism is it's such a big word, it sort of means nothing. So I, I hesitate to use it. But something about photomontage and the shock of montage or metamorphosis and wanting to employ images in way that are produce an element of shock that are maybe ambiguous as to how to interpret them, but they're not abstract. So it was that space in between that I was interested in, yeah, where actually something is clearly provoked, but it's not 100% clear. So it's really bordering on the photomontage, where you have a montaging or a metamorphosis. 
um, that has interested me and been a sort of anchor for what's what's gone on in different, what I've continued with, I think, for a long while. You mentioned studying theatre and the idea of performance and ritual really comes across quite strongly in, in your work. Often the, the camera or at least the filmmaking process is, is visible. Quite often, again, you look directly at the camera or, or, the, or the person in the frame mm-hmm. looks directly at the camera, which kind of breaks that fourth wall as in a theatre anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I often feel that I'm invited in to, to bear witness to the process of capturing images on film. Does that seem like a fair reflection of, of, the, of the way that you've presented your work over the years? Uh, yes, I hope so. I wanted to explore the elements that came out of structuralist film in a way that would bring in and not exclude the sub, the filmmaker, the subject, the performer, so that the process that was being explored, it wasn't just the camera, the space, the splitting of time, the representing of space, but that the camera operator and performer was very much part of that exposure and not separate in any way. So it was a concern that I used the word contiguity <laughs> to think about space behind the camera, space in front, what I'm wearing, what might be worn in the space, the set, the performer, the costume, uh, the camera. So I, I was trying to do that in certain films and there was key films where I do it more deliberately. But I think what you've said, I can't remember how you've worded it about you're being invited into something of the process. Yes, and I do want to do that, but I don't want it just to be that. I also then want to bring in the performance, the image. So you, there's also, it rides next to something going on as well. It's not just the, it's not just reduced into a sort of conceptual um, or more. Yeah. We have a figure there. And we have a person and their subjectivity. And then, uh, so in blind light, I do that in stages of mourning where there's a meditation of me with the photographs. But I also bring the fact that there's, uh, for most of the time, I'm on my own when I do it. And in blind light, I stage a lot of these things where the the aperture is changing according to the clouds moving across the sun and me manipulating the camera, but also me pulling the blind down. So I'm making a relationship between, I'm making all those visible as a performance or as much as I can anyway. When did the idea of reflection um, start to show in in your work, that the presence of of mirrors, of reflections in in water and and light, but also the the physical sense of of a person being reflected? Well, actually, right from the beginning, actually, right from actually when I was doing my BA, I was working um, images that haven't been seen with reflected, distorted images of of my face and of me in in objects that I made that were both 3D and 2D and sand paintings. It was a reduced element of that that then came to be You Be Mother. So... It's been there all the time as a concern. When, and then we see the inside of the body in milk and glass. Then I continue to work with photomontaging, placing one object image over another where you get, I think, an element of shock or an element of 
that the still image is placed over something that's moving. So interconnecting of the flesh, the inanimate, intersecting of um, different material qualities, different properties, different things, objects, subjects. I think it's an investigation, a curiosity about the very language of film, which is a mirror. The mirror is an essence to that. Film has been perceived as a metaphor for consciousness because it's a mirror, because there is a space to reflect upon. Um, And I think there's something in that. I often have spoken about the split subjectivity from psychoanalysis, the split subjectivity, and that's what's often discussed in feminist visual film theory the split between the object and the subject. If you're represented as spectacle, this, then you look at yourself. This is Mulvey looking at yourself as can only be sadistic if you're looking at yourself in terms of pleasure. But this is very theoretical. And I think there's a way to approach and think about it as just reflection. When I take photographs where, where I'm seen in the mirror, that I'm actually looking at the camera, not looking at myself, but it, it suggests that. It can be perceived as a way of reflecting upon our visual experience of the world and the the language of film. If I set up lots of mirrors, it's an examination of reflection and having a space apart from, which is what consciousness is. You're reflecting upon your, your split because it's a fundamental part of the consciousness. And I'm curious about that. I'm curious about what it what it is, I suppose. I mean, I can say at a personal level, it's always been, I don't like looking in the mirror. So it's a sort of difficult thing. And I think for women, the self-consciousness, the attention given to your image is really, really difficult. When I grew up, me and my, my sister and I were given a dressing table with a mirror in our room, bedrooms. My brothers weren't. I couldn't understand this. Why have we got the mirrors? And they, so they might be given a proper desk to work, but I'm given this mirror. What am I going to do with it? (laughs) And then my mother would sit with the mirror all the time. I mean, this is another story because there's obviously a story behind this, but she was obsessed with the mirror and would sit looking at herself, worrying about it, spraying hairspray all over. And I couldn't get her attention because looking at the mirror and then she would say, do I look all right, Sarah? When I was very, very small, do I look okay? And it worried me that, upset me that she worried so much and spent so much time. I thought, well, when I grow up, I'm just really not going to spend time in, in the mirror. So there was a sort of loaded thing already about, I mean, there's more, there's always more and one can't always say things, but I could think psychoanalytically more about that as well, where it comes from. So it's obviously a highly gendered thing as well, but it's also about well, your, your, your place in the world. What is it? If, when people look at you, it, it, it does impact uh, your own vision of yourself, doesn't it, in the world? So it is your vision in the world in that way. You, you mentioned animation at the top of the interview and the the animation on your work is is, is spectacular uh, in particular in magic mirror um from 2013 and the, the, there's a style of animation in there and 
I, I think the, the the soundtrack at some points it's maybe a fairground organ or a barrel organ, um, and sound effects like typewriters, which add a certain kind of rhythm uh, and tempo to a scene. Um, and I think collectively all these things evoke something in me that I can't quite place. That style of animation is something that you really embraced. Do you think that Eastern European animation that you mentioned earlier was a big influence in the kind of work that you presented as part of Magic Mirror? Well, it might have been. I have always loved photomontage. There's something about it that's so direct and it's always felt it's not allowed. It's propaganda. It's, it's not allowed. When I was at the Slade, I did um, start to make animation, photo collage animation. And I was, it was really poo-pooed and I was told it wasn't, it wasn't good. And um, I think I was just now partly my time to come back, you know, hey, shit, I'm going to do this. Because I do love, I love the process of make, of animation. And I think it's because I also love the model animation. And I think it's because you can invent a world where objects move and do things, which I did when I was very small. I had dolls who had parties and loads of dolls and very elaborate parties went on because my siblings used to play together. And I think I think now what happened is I got a bit left out, so I would be on my own. And this is that. This is this, is this concentration where things move and do things. And if you know what you're doing then it will happen. And although the object hasn't actually moved at all, in order to be able to do it, you have to know when it moved. It, in my head, it has all happened before I see the film, which is a week later. It's all happened and I almost know if, and, and I love it particularly if you're doing it with your hands as well. So my hand moves and the object moves. And so you get this interrelation of the movements of objects and or subjects that move. And so the subject-object thing just starts to break down. And I, I find that, um, yeah, thrilling in a way. So I think it connects with this whole theme that I have been interested in all the time of finding an intersection between properties, between things, where actually objects, they do move. Hair does grow, we just never see it. Planet turns, there's this, the tree, all these things grow, the planets move, but we don't see it. And so getting a sense of that is um, the inanimate moving in a way, is does actually happen in a way. The fairground, the typewriter, so it's something about the mechanical, but it's through the, the, ver the different, and it comes up in Magic Mirror at a particular point with the eye, you see the macro image of the eye, the pupil, and then the pen ink, the fountain pen with the leaking um, ink and the blotting paper, and then the iris of the eye and the clicking of the shutter. I, I've been very interested in how sound can change how you see an image, that they're just not separate. When you hear that sound with that image, it affects how you're seeing the image. You don't know that, but it does. You're registering the image in a way you wouldn't if you didn't have that sound. You're loving the image, but it's the sound that's holding you there or impacting how you see the image, I think. Mm -hmm. 
into the moth light. Into the moth light podcast. My thought would take revenge in mirrors which it sought out, lovesick, sadistic, and yet torturing itself at the same time, dragging this recalcitrant body in front of its reflection. Holding it there, then feigns surprise and pretends not to recognise it, criticises it, judges it unworthy, and finally puts it to sleep, like a guard, in order to escape from this sordid prison. In both Magic Mirror from 2013 and Confessions to the Mirror from 2016, Sarah Purcell brings cinematic life to the photographic and written archive of Claude Cajon. Black and white self-portraits and still lifes are restaged. Images of Cajon's home in Jersey are projected as a backdrop to handmade sets and costumes. There's an intense dialogue between artists and an exploration of some of the themes and ideas they have in common. It's also a masterclass in what can be done with the medium of film to animate still photography and the written words. I asked Sarah about her introduction to Claude Gahan and her work. Okay, I was first introduced to her when I was studying at Slade by Sharon Morris, so that would be 1989, so it was very early days when she wasn't really very well, but really known. I think her first exhibition in the UK, one of the first exhibitions, almost one of the first, was in the UK at ICA in 1989, I think. So I think it was before I left, or maybe I'm wrong, it was 1990, but I think it was 1989. Um... So I first saw her images then, but I think I'd seen them before she was she was there because Sharon was writing something on doing a PhD on her work and, and a few others in relation to her writing. So all of my filmmaking time really in 16 mil, I've um since I've been making work, I've known of her work and I've always loved her photographs and I've always wondered what she was wanted to know more about her writing. There was some published text on her but not a lot then when the Tate published um, Avernon Avenue um, annulled confessions or disavowals confessions cut off I was really excited to, to be able to read that to get the translation and as I read it I thought wow it, it, it opened something up to me because I then discovered wow who is this woman people said she was feminist she wasn't feminist what did she really think if she was su- such an early participator in surrealism people said she was on the shelf she didn't really have a view and what what did she think and I really wanted to know because as a lesbian and a feminist or no I didn't know really what was her view on how the women were represented and conceived and their place in surrealism it seemed like there wasn't really a voice there wasn't really a strong female voice then when I it was there in her images but didn't know what she'd said and I, I wanted something to come with it because people were saying, well, maybe she wasn't. Then suddenly it was very war and everything was there in the text. And I just thought, wow, this is brilliant. I'd love to do something with this, but I didn't know what to do. Two, two filmmakers, Barbara Hammer and Lizzie Tyne, had made documentaries on her at this point. And I thought, well, I, that's been done. And also, actually, I don't want to do a documentary. I don't 
think that's the best way to represent her in in a way. Of course, it needs to be done, but I wanted to do something that could be considered collaborative, I suppose, in a certain sense. Um, so I actually wasn't confident enough to do it. That was one of the things I thought, I can't do this. I mean, it's going to be very difficult. What will I know? I'm not... Then, I, I mean, the truth is I then read something by Jen Doy where she'd mentioned me as a photographer in her book, somehow connected with Claude Cahan. And I just thought, right, that's a sign. I will um, get on and do this regardless of funds, regardless of anything, which is sort of what I did. And I was so excited to do it, so excited to restage her photographs. There's something about Tableau Vivant that when I saw them in Derek Jarman's Caravaggio, the Tableau Vivant of Caravaggio's paintings, when I saw Isaac Julian's Looking for Langston, the restaging tableau vivant of several photographers at the time working in the 20s in New York from the Harlem Renaissance, juxtaposed with jazz from the time and poetry from the time to bring alive gay male black time period that had other, otherwise been lost from history. This was super major and had a big impact as an idea. But apart from the idea, just for me, actually just to see Tableau Vivant of a photograph with the, with the time of the jazz and the poetry all together, it was like as if that was in, happening in New York at the time, but it, it, it's only been really put together much later in a sense. And, and they're restaged. It's not the exact photograph, but it's restaged enough to be well. That is the photograph, yeah, in a way. Um, and I thought, that's magical. That's an amazing thing. It's, it's, it, to me, it seemed like a music score, the idea of a music score or a, or a theatre script that could be replayed later, that one could approach photography in this way, particularly staged uh, photography. It's not the same as just... You know, to be for photography to be understood, it's a problem word in a way artistically because it's just a mechanism. It may be a performance, it may be a staged, it could be different things. What the photograph's doing, you know, what it's capturing. So, it, it, when they're staged, it's very much a method of painting in a way, I think, contemporary method of painting. That's how I like to think about how I've approached it sometimes. So, so I was very keen to, I think they're my key references. And, and also Sandra Lahir, who was my partner, who talked to, you know, her Plath trilogy was influential in me wanting to work with an earlier artist who I could identify across with in ways that my contemporary artists, I couldn't necessarily as much. And Isaac Julian has said this. He wanted to be making work around black, gay, uh, and more incorporating other 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 art forms call it because his own context of the structures filmmakers this was mostly white men whatever wasn't it wasn't relevant so I think that sort of idea of crossing time is quite nice I love to hear you talk so passionately about that that discovery and the the excitement of of what might be possible in, in a way to um reflect the work and the idea of looking at Tableau Vivant 
is a, is a way to kind of represent our work. At the time when you were preparing to, to make Magic Mirror uh, as a film, you obviously had this enthusiasm and connection with the, with the subject matter. And it sounds like there were so many ideas all going on at once. So talk to me about your process as a, as a filmmaker around research and from there how you decided what, what Magic Mirror was going to look like and maybe perhaps how, how that was applied to confessions to the mirror as well. I think for Magic Mirror, I first selected the photographs I would restage. And they were images that I loved mostly that, and that I would be able to restage without it being too laborious a task. You know, the, the idea was to get the main sense of the image. Not, I wasn't doing, going to do, it wasn't a budget to, to put in everything. It was to get the main sense. And if it isn't, that, that would work. So selecting the image is mostly based on initially on what the images I loved and the thing, the images that would raise the stuff I wanted to be raised. Then I went through, because they had to be selected and I had to get people who, some people who are helping me do stuff, make objects for them. So while that was being done, I then looked at the text and I had to select the, the strongest. So all the strong pieces of text that said, here she is, she declares herself feminist. Here she says something about uh, whatever, where anything I felt was political that I wanted to bring out because people were saying she wasn't political. She was a postmodernist. Barbara Hammer said that in, in meaning for her that it was in, didn't have political position. And I didn't find that in the text. I wanted to highlight that. Then just text that I thought was beautiful or whatever. Then, of course, because I had my images, it was text that would go with images. Ah, oh, that's got to go in because of that. When she said something about when in the second film, the Breton peasant woman, wow, that, that matches that image. I'm bringing it together. It made me feel I'm not just, this actually has research in it about, about Cahan. So when there was a link or she says something about the photography practice, then, of course, all of that went in. That, in a nutshell, anchors what, what it was, what I like, what we're going to, because I was trying to bring these things together. And maybe I thought, oh, I could do something there with sound or um, elements came up in the writing as well, as well as in the images that were, that triggered something that's very similar to what I've done in earlier work. One of them was this moment in cast with the kiss, when the kiss comes as she looks in the mirror, and it's like a not, um, it, it's like uh, the surrealist two films where the, where the protagonist looks in the mirror, in Maya Deren she does, and also in um, Blood of a Poet, where there's she uh, goes through the mirror. So this, I had staged something, in an earlier film with two of Cahoon's photographs, her by the mirror and her partner Marcel Moore by the mirror, and I had put them together to make a film that was called Cast. And I'd used a particular technique of the mirror and a window and whatever, a false wall. So I want, there was a lot of occasions where there were techniques I wanted to employ, and I knew I could do it easily because I'd done it before. So Certain choreographic techniques, I thought I could do something. That was a reason for taking it. 
What did I do with the ordering of Magic Mirror, of how I composed it through time? The beginning of the film and the end, a map, the beginning and end of the, t- the text Avernon Avenue. But I'm remembering this as I say, Avernon Avenue is split up into about 10 or 12 chapters. And the chapters are all fronted with a photo. It's not a photo montage. It's actually a photogravure. So it's actually photo, It's actually drawn, but it looks like a photograph. And when I did do the animations of those, it, I, it was a laborious thing. I've redone each one. I photographed it. They're not, I haven't cut up Cahoon's cutout. I think people think I have, but anyway. I think it's not chronological particularly because I needed that room to move it through. But I did loosely give them chapters that mapped it. And now, amid the chaos of the Second World War, taken by surprise, my brush draws a real Breton peasant woman. blue-green, mocking seawater gaze that penetrates beyond the storm, beyond the mist-drowned horizon. In Jersey, we waged a war, an individual struggle for two. We were committed to persuading the German soldiers to turn against their Nazi officers whilst sharing our house with a farmer, his proletarian mates, his wife and his brats, sharing everything we could spare with Russians in rags, our bread, our tobacco. Welke man had das Recht, ein Volk zu opfern, um eine Regierung zu retten? What man has the right to sacrifice a people to save a government? With confessions, it was a different process because I already knew Cahoon's, much more about Cahoon, so I was more confident in a way. And I made the second film because I felt I'd left out important things in the first one because I didn't want to solidify it as that's my last take. I wanted to go through and expose more. I felt I wanted to give more about Marcel Moore that the relationship between them seemed important. I'd left that out. It seemed a problem that I had. I wanted to do that, show their collaboration. And although, and also to make work more around one of the most significant things that they were involved in really, which was their propaganda activity, the Isle of Jersey. It seemed so important to not include it anywhere. So I thought this would give the opportunity to do that. And also because I wanted to explore using colour. If the, if all the photographs were black and white, what would it be to do that? Also to explore using outside and to, to, to go to Jersey. And the other the other reason is that it it is believed that the two key major texts by Kaham were Avernon Avenue, disavowed confessions. 
and then confessions to the mirror which which seemed like they were a twin so it just seemed right that i did that so that was also a reason and it also gave me opportunity to just as a filmmaker to think differently how i could compose something i didn't know how i would approach her text confidence au miroir i didn't realize before i started how much it would be a really trom trom it's a sort of traumatic memoir that has a surrealist angle to it as well it's not just a straightforward memoir actually it's beautifully written some of the it has surrealism at the heart of it which makes sense under the in the context of war i think and the trauma but the sur absolute surreality of the court case that she writes beautifully the bizarreness and obviously so painful so traumatic so frightening but she writes it in this shrewd with humor because of the severity of what happened to them um the imprisonment the attempting suicide at least twice once each and it did shorten cahoon's cahoon's life it it wasn't the case of it being a, a concentration camp but it they were cold and um the act of having attempted suicide and not i think that was suffer you know she what she wasn't so that it's very dark and difficult territory and i felt i i can't do aesthetic play games with this this she's written this as a testament i have to now honor that somehow but i wanted to honor it in a way that would also introduce her creativity an element of fun and genius along with marcel moore and their work together and to celebrate that and to give that a further voice. The choice to leave Paris for Jersey, then to stay in Jersey instead of evacuating to England in June 1940, I am proud of it. Am I proud of my choice? The anguish, the vague remorse that comes with the livid darkness preceding the dawn. Has one the right to commit a loved one together with oneself? Yet if there is love, how can one not be forced to commit more than oneself? So in the film I was able the, the composition of the film was a more important element i guess i i left that consistency that the the text is is a is is much closer to something that's an abridged version and it was a it was a long difficult thing to do i had to lose lots of the text because there was just too much in it and a very difficult thing to allow the images to have their space not have this voice constantly talking to you so i decided when i edited it that i'm just going to let people know the story at the beginning which you get in the text and then you can just relax and you're going to be told this again but it's not going to be a drama i don't want to make a drama out of this event so i want you to hold back from that and just make it about her photographs the tableau and then you're given the story but you knew it anyway sort of with the idea of restaging the black and white self portraits and still life photographs adding color to what was traditionally black and white photography um mixing with the, the readings from 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 the text and the memoir so you you really are testing what the medium of film can do to bring 
the written words and still images to life, aren't you? Yes, that is what I wanted to do, to try and bring it into the present as a way of as a way of accessing that historical artwork, as a way of accessing what Cahoon has left it. It can be that we access it not just through representing it in a gallery space, but we can access it through a creative process of an artist. Yeah, and not just one, but other people are working on it with me. The still life was very important in Confessions because this had been left out. I really wanted them to kind of be given some space in it. People don't know that work so much. Um, so a lot of them, the people may not know that those images actually are Cahans. But yeah, it seems to me that you, in a sense, you've got Cahoon's voice in the work because it's her writing, but it has been translated and to some degree moved around. It's been given sound. It's alongside what sort of have been her photographs. Some are, some are much closer to the original photograph than others. And some just play across. Some images just represent what's in the text and aren't her photographs. So they that, that happens much more in Confessions. There was a quote that I read that said that Claude Cahon uses photography and text to challenge preconceived ideas around gender and gender identity. Do you think by working in film that you've maybe taken this one step further by adding that medium and and challenging the same preconceived ideas about gender and gender identity? Yes, I, I certainly hope so, yeah, that using even the metamorphosis in Magic Mirror you actually see the metamorphosis. It's all literalized in a way, but you can feel it maybe as well. You actually feel the transition between the different attires and hopefully, you know, transitions between the iris of an eye, the blot of an ink or the pen nib, different things. Maybe sometimes in the macro you can see. So it's a mutability, um, a, an aesthetic of mutation anyway. In a sense. I first saw Confessions to the Mirror at the Alchemy Film Festival in 2017. And I know that since you, you made the work, it has had a, a really good run at festival appearances and and screened in other places as well. And of course, now Lux are bringing out the Blu-ray version of, of the film. Do you feel by making both films that, that people will have a better uh, awareness of the subject and hopefully from there go back to understand the photographs and possibly even read some of the memoirs and texts as well? Well, I would like to think that, yes. I suppose also I would like not just that, but to think about an inspiration for the idea of cross-fertilization, of being able to, I would like it to be an example of what artists or what filmmakers can do with earlier artists, so that artists can be historicized or brought into the present, both, via artists and not just historians or curators or museums. I think it's a valuable thing. And sometimes maybe because without the institution, well, it could be, it could be you know that it's free of you know institutional censorship. 
I have seen shows by Cahoon that are censored um, heavily. You know, the image of Cahoon just after she came out of prison being juxtaposed with a contemporary artist who was, I'm not going to say where, dancing in a shopping precinct. And this is lack of awareness. And I think how things are historicized is always political. And if you have an artist who is political in particular ways, it's, I think it's a great thing that artists can do that, not just for the history, but also for the contemporary to actually engage, not just with the now or what you're doing now, but also to be what, what we understand of history is what we understand of now. And I think everyone's talking a lot about collaborating with others, but I think we can also do it historically. I think film is a great medium for being able to do this and to examine and highlight parts that otherwise aren't seen or, you know. I mean, even the idea of a semi-unfunded artist working with the kind of material that Kahan is talking about, how often do we see artists making, it's, it's, it's normally a corporation or an industry making work about giving us histories of war. Um, Sarah, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. It, it's been a, a a joy to to revisit your work and, and and talk in detail about confessions to the mirror and about magic mirror. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Into the Mothlight Podcast is sponsored by the Film and Video Poetry Society. Into the Mothlight Podcast. <laughs> Into the Mothman.